teach us this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's, uh, it's quite a short passage, isn't it? It's four verses. And yet here we have Jesus interceding for Simon Peter. And it brings us a lot of depth, a lot of things that maybe we didn't expect, uh, maybe things that, that are new to us. This occurs just after the disciples have left the upper room in the Last Supper. To our modern-day understanding, it seems almost blasphemous that Christians can be attacked by Satan. Surely we always have the victory in Christ. Our future is certain. Surely we just sit back and let this church cruise liner sail us to glory. Well, as the passage this morning tells us, there's more to it than that. And if Jesus needed to intercede for his followers, then so do we. This morning we'll unravel this short passage in terms of how it fits in with the wider scripture and our situation as Christians in a hostile world under the broad headings of our enemy Satan, our false confidence in ourselves, this need for intercession and inspiring intercessions from the Bible and even among us, and finally this wonderful power of intercession. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. You see, our arch enemy roams the earth. In Job chapter 1, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Can you hear the arrogance in his voice? Here we have this fallen angel who took half the company of heaven with him, this enemy of God, this enemy of the Christian, and he's lauding it about that he walks along the earth. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does God fear God for nothing? Satan replied. You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. You see, Satan is this great accuser. He thinks that we are only in it because we're going to get something out of it. He thinks we don't really love God. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah has shown Joshua the high priest in a vision, standing before the angel of the Lord. But Satan is standing at his right side to accuse him. And he accuses this high priest, Joshua. But in the passage, God takes off his filthy clothes and gives him clean clothes, symbolizing what Jesus does for us. You see, our arch enemy wants us to fail. He wants to accuse us. And yet, we have a God who's in our corner. Sifting refers to the repeated, swift, and violent shaking of the wheat in a sieve. Can you imagine it? The head and stalk of wheat were beaten and trampled and placed in a sieve. The sieve is grasped in both hands. And repeated, swift, and violent shaking of the wheat separates the wheat from the lighter chaff. And the chaff is then thrown away. Remember that this is not a gentle or a false accusation, a false threat. Satan has already prevailed with Judas, and he thinks that the other disciples are chaffed too. A bit of pressure here or there, and they will fall away, and Jesus' ministry will end as quickly as it began. We know that in general, Jesus prayed for all his disciples. 
In John's gospel, his prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So we are here this morning in that blessing that Jesus has prayed for all believers. But here we have an example of him praying for an individual. So obviously there's something more serious happening. We don't know if Simon needed extra prayer because he was headstrong or because as a potential leader, he was under more attack from Satan. But we know that Jesus thought it was worth praying for him. How many times this week have, have we been waiting or, or have we been chaff? How many times have we taken the easy path and been light, too lightweight, blown away and useless? You see, the Christian life, unlike those fashion magazines, it actually wants us to put on weight. It actually wants us to be heavy, heavy with, with, with scripture and with knowledge. It wants us to stay in the sieve and not to be blown away. It reminds me of that where the finger writes on the wall with King Darius in the Old Testament and the, the, the prophecy is that you've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. In other words, King Darius, you're not heavy enough. You don't have what, what lasts and what counts. So we see here that there's blessing in being weighted in God to knowing our, pres our place in him and knowing his presence with us. Then we see where Peter reacts and he says, I'm ready to go with you to prison and death. I imagine that old film with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, where the idea in Peter's head is that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem and he's right beside him. And they're going to uh, succeed with all in front of them or else he's going to go to prison or persecution along with Jesus and he's going to be right there with him. But Jesus knows Peter. Jesus knows that that's not the reality. Jesus knows that this is the same guy who jumped out of a perfectly safe boat and tried to walk on water. Now, we know that that was out of faith and we see that, G that Peter was actually commended for that. But no sooner was he out of the boat and walking on the water with Jesus than he panics and he looks to himself and he gets scared and he cries out like a baby. Now, I'm sorry I'm being harsh because I think you and I probably wouldn't have got out of that boat. But here we have Peter, he's blowing hot and cold and Jesus knows his heart. We know too that Jesus showed exceptional grace whenever Peter got out of that boat. I don't believe the, the lovely serene uh, paintings that we see of this where it's a lovely calm lake and they're both just walking along on the, on the water because the painter wasn't there. I imagine Jesus praying hard for this mortal man to walk on water, which remember is physically impossible, and then that false confidence being thrown back in his face Peter starts to sink, and guess who has to jump in and pull him out? And they're both soaking wet. And I think of Jesus doing that with us each day, grabbing in and pulling us up out of the depths, getting soaking wet, because that's what Jesus does for us. But back to Peter. We know that he thought that he could face an armed centurion, but he couldn't even face a little servant girl who accused him of being with Jesus. And this second soaking for Peter is worse than the first. The first time Peter reached in and pulled him up, this time Jesus is gone. Peter has betrayed him and he is alone. You see, Peter was overconfident. Remember to especially guard against places where we think that we are safe. Remember that castles are only as secure as their weakest point. The point where attack is never expected is where defenses aren't strong and it's where we can get attacked. 
So take the lesson from Peter. Always be careful of where your confidence lies. For Peter had an inflated view of himself. He was writing checks with no money in the bank. He was all chaff and no weight. Or rather, he was trusting in his own ability. Remember that an hour later, he'd be pulling out a sword and trying to cut off the servant of the high priest's ear because he worked with fear and he worked with his own ability. But you see, we serve the king of kings. He often calls us not to strength, but to weakness, to humiliation, to embarrassing awkwardness when we tell people we're Christians, to ridicule, to misunderstanding. Yet the proof of his power is that he doesn't even have to show it. Isn't it scary when you're with someone who doesn't even have to defend himself because he is the king of kings. He is truth. He is the way. He is the life. See, I don't have to be strong because I'm with him. Jesus is with, with us whenever we go into these places. And in witnessing about Jesus, we often uh, don't win them over with a good argument. The bigger effect is when we show we don't actually need to win the argument because we are there because Jesus loves us. Yes, we believe it's the truth, but someone greater than us has forgiven us, loved us, and doesn't, uh, it doesn't matter when we get called names or humiliated because he is so much bigger. The next thing I want to look at is where Jesus says, I have prayed for you in particular, Simon, that your faith may not fail. It's interesting that Jesus needed to pray for Simon. Jesus refers to him as Simon because Peter is the name he gives to him, about meaning rock. And he knows that Peter is no rock, that he's just a man like you and us, you and I. Now, why did Jesus tell Peter he was praying for him? Because surely the prayer was sufficient in itself. But maybe whenever uh, Peter was going through trials, he would remember this, that Jesus had confidence in him and was praying with him, was praying for him. That would have taken him through. It would also have taken him through on the other side, I believe, because if he got through this, then he would know it wasn't down to him but it was down to the prayer of the Savior. And therefore, it was in humility that he was to lead when this whole thing was, was through. You see, we put our trust in the one who made us and loves us. Uh, I know modern psychology talks about having faith in yourself, but that's only half the story, isn't it? We put our faith in someone who is stronger. Yes, we can debate the sovereignty of God and how, people's and how God's purposes can't be thwarted. But remember Mordecai's words to Esther from the sermon a few weeks ago. If you remain silent at this time, Esther, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? I believe that God has a plan. God is sovereign, but God deigns to make us part of it, and we are a useful part of it. And all Peter would have been aware of was the storm around him, and Jesus promises to be with him. And sometimes that's all we have too. Peter has a choice, and make no mistake, it was Satan's purpose to bring the disciples to utter ruin. As with Job, Satan calculated that the disciples were only in it for what they could get for themselves and that whenever something wrong happened, that they would fall away. But the wonderful truth of this is that the Creator gives us free will, gives free will to His creature, and the creature uses that free will to love His Creator. The salvation plan works, and I hope it works in each of our lives that we turn to Jesus in love, not in obligation, not for what we can get out of it. You see, the sifting of the wheat gets rid of the alien matter. It takes out the unwholesome bits, the untruthfulness, the play acting, the selfish motives, the time wasters. Remember, that's not us. We are the wheat. 
I'd like to caution you this morning too against an academic study of this passage. One of the dangers of academic study is we decide whether we like this passage or not. We decide whether uh, we, we want to analyze it in a particular way. But I don't think we're removed from the battle. This passage is about, is about us. We are not moving the chess pieces. We are the chess pieces. Right now we decide whether we are the wheat or whether we are the chaff. We also, in a way, we don't fully understand, get to decide who gets intercessory protection and who doesn't. It's actually as serious as that. Forgive me if I'm being blunt, but questions about how much we need to pray and how much God and his sovereignty will keep things moving without us is okay for the academics and the generals. But I, I consider myself a foot soldier, and when I'm in danger, I pray, because the onslaught might come against me and my loved ones. So I pray, and I pray, and after that, I pray a little bit more. It's been put in a poem, the name of Jesus, the highest of all, more powerful than we can imagine. We talk compromise with no sword at our side while it's merciless war that Satan's waging. This is a battle. This is not a cruise ship. This is a battleship. Then if Jesus needed to pray for Peter, we need to pray too. But don't worry, we're not alone. There are some great examples in Scripture. Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. Remember what happened? He brought down the tablets of the Ten Commandments and they'd made a golden calf. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. Moses is willing to stand in the gap. He's willing to say, Look, I'm pleading for the people. Please throw me out of your book, but just save the people. And that's the type of intercession that that we're talking about this morning, where we pray with passion and desire for the lost and for those people dear to us, that they may be saved. We look at Daniel too. Daniel knew how to uh, engage in intercessory prayer. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He was troubled. He couldn't sleep. He said to his astrologers, I have decided if you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Of course, that was impossible for men to know what uh, Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed, never mind try to, to interpret it. So Daniel returns to his house, explains the matter to his friends. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Why? Because his life depended on it. He was another one of these astrologers that was going to be killed by the king. And Daniel is given uh, this interpretation by God after his friends intercede. And Daniel goes to the king and says, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has talked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and that is the God that we serve. Daniel himself went into spiritual battle. In uh, the first year of Darius's reign, I, Daniel understood from the scriptures uh, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So what did I do? I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Daniel knew how to intercede. It's interesting too, there's another addition to this story because in the next chapter, uh, the angel comes to reveal uh, the, this, this dream. He says, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself, your words were heard. And I have come to respond, in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom restricted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me and to reveal this to you. 
That's, that's a scary thought. That's, so there's a battle not only on earth but in the heavenlies, which we can't fully understand. But 21 days was how long it took for this intercession of, of Daniel and this interpretation of this dream. There are ins inspiring assessors among us too, I, I believe. I haven't met many prayer warriors. If I did, I probably didn't know it because they are a humble lot. But time and again, I felt their presence. I know of tribes in Africa faithfully prayed for by people in Northern Ireland for decades before the missionary first reaches them. And we're seeing them come to faith now in these areas of Africa. You see, in any assault in enemy, ter enemy territory, you don't commit ground troops until you've laid down a barrage of artillery. And that's what the intercessory prayer does. At university, I was involved in a coffee bar outreach inside the Students' Union, uh, and we would have made a cup of coffee, stand rather awkwardly, and try to s start a conversation about Jesus. And boy, did you feel awkward. Uh, and you're standing there, and sometimes you got good conversations, sometimes you didn't. Um, and sometimes, or probably always, they thought you're a complete fool. But you see, they weren't going to come into our buildings, so Jesus, I think, told us to go out to them. And we might have been fools, but I mean, Jesus is worthy. But let me add something. While we were talking and acting awkwardly, there was half the group in praying because there is no way we were going into that place without intercessory prayer. And like Daniel, we need to find believers to pray with us. I myself came to saving faith and assurance of salvation in my second year at university. As someone once said, when you find Christ, the searching ends and the battle begins. And boy, was it a battle. And in my class of about 70 engineers, there's a few steady, faithful, strong Christians uh, that I count as, as good friends. One of them is Brian Ballantyne, uh, who recently battled cancer for two years and died a fortnight ago. I'd ask for prayers for his family that he leaves behind. But I'd like to publicly say that I valued his prayers, his witness, his intercessory prayer for me, because that intercessory prayer will live far beyond his short life with us. See, Russian Christians that we met in 1992 have been praying for the fall of communism, not for one year, not for two years, for 70 years. It took 70 years for communism to fall. I hope you have lots of stories of intercessory battles that maybe you won or lost. This is maybe not the setting for it now, but I, I, I pray that you will have more to tell. You see, this isn't a cruise ship, it's a battleship. We have incoming torpedoes regularly. Sometimes we intercept them, sometimes we don't. And I can only apologize for the times when we don't. Because like, like, like Peter, we're amateurs, but we serve a mighty God. Finally, this morning, I want to talk a little bit, and just briefly, about this power of intercession. Because Jesus doesn't leave it there. He says, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. There's a wonderful, positive, prophetic word in Jesus' words, when, not if, you have turned again. You see, the evil one's desire, his persistent demand, has been counteracted by the prayer of Jesus. Satan has asked of Peter for himself, just as he, as he had uh, prevailed with Judas. But Peter has understood the gospel. He's responded in faith to Jesus. And now, as a result of Jesus' intercession, Peter's faith will not be destroyed. You see, Satan does not have ultimate power and must ask permission to tempt Peter. Yes, this raises uncomfortable questions about the Lord allowing us to face trouble. But as Paul says, God is the perfecter of our faith. 
Peter, when you've turned back or retraced your wrong steps, you will have the humility and experience to help others. As Paul says in Corinthians, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance in the same sufferings we suffer. You see, we know that our Lord's prayer was answered for Peter because remember Pentecost. Remember that it was Peter that preached and 3,000 souls came to know Jesus. Oh, that we had more Peters in this day where 3,000 in one, one sermon could come to the Lord. But that was because Jesus had prayed for him and Jesus was with him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of intercessory prayer. We thank you for the example of intercessory prayer that you, you yourself showed us. We thank you, Lord, for the people of intercessory prayer in the Bible. We thank you, Lord, for the people of intercessory prayer sitting among us. And we pray that we may be one of their number. And Lord, that we may be the wheat, that we may be strong in you and stay and steady in the faith. In Jesus' precious name, Lord. Amen.